Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galletti. Hello, this is Nick Galletti with a special episode of Articles of Faith. I say it's special because our normal focus with the show is on articles written in scholarly journals such as The Interpreter, Square Two, and we've been lining up some to include BYU studies as well. In this episode, we're featuring two articles written on blogs, chosen because of their firsthand experience with church disciplinary councils. One article from the perspective of a person who went through one such council, and the other from the perspective of one who was in a variety of callings that involved being part of disciplinary councils. This episode will feature two interviews, one with Barbie Berg, who wrote the first article, The Truth About an LDS Disciplinary Council, and the other is by Alan Wyatt, with his article simply entitled Excommunication. This episode is in some ways a response to the events and discourse surrounding the very public church discipline hearings of both Kate Kelly and John DeLynn. At the time of these interviews, Kate Kelly has been formally excommunicated for, quote, conduct contrary to the laws and orders of the church, end quote, and that she was also found to be persisting in an aggressive effort to persuade other church members to her points of view and that her course of action has threatened to erode the faith of others. Kate Kelly has since declared that she intends to appeal her excommunication. John DeLynn, on the other hand, has not yet, at the time of this recording, attended meetings or councils resulting in any church discipline. While an overwhelming majority of church disciplinary councils are not made so public, because of the attention that these two have received, largely due to the efforts of Kate Kelly and John DeLynn themselves, we may find many asking questions and seeking answers, while others make incorrect, incomplete, or unchristlike declarations about what disciplinary hearings are, what they mean, how they come to be, and how they are to be conducted. Both of these articles and authors were chosen because, over the course of these weeks surrounding the public announcement of Kate Kelly and John DeLynn's forthcoming church disciplinary councils, there has been a lot said regarding these councils. It's my opinion that there was much said that fell short of the true nature, spirit, and purpose of disciplinary councils, and I felt it was important to take the time to realign the discourse. It is my personal opinion that these two articles share a valuable perspective that should be taken into consideration when absorbing and discussing all church disciplinary councils, not just Kate Kelly and John DeLynn's scenario. So I want to welcome you, Alan, uh, Alan Wyatt, uh, to discuss your article that you wrote on LDS disciplinary councils entitled Excommunication. Your article kind of goes into the background of why you even felt impressed to write something, but if you would be willing to give us your introduction or your reasons that you felt prompted to essentially enter the fray of online discussion surrounding this issue, um, give us kind of a brief on why why you did this. Sure. I I, I appreciate the opportunity, quite honestly, Absolutely. to do that. Um, I had actually thought about writing a commentary on what was actually, or my feelings about what was actually going on with... Uh, with Kate Kelly in particular, since she was the one that was at the forefront uh, at the time that I wrote. But what I noticed was, is that a lot of people were jumping to conclusions about disciplinary councils themselves and the process behind disciplinary councils and what a a mean, dirty, rotten scoundrel the bishop must be (laughs) for, 
you know, putting Kate through all of this. But the problem is, is that a bishop or a stake president, if he's the one who is heading up the disciplinary council, uh, neither one of them would be free because of their position to discuss certainly any specifics that are going on. They can't defend their side. Correct. They, they can't even speak to their side, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the days since uh, Kate Kelly's disciplinary council ha- has reached a decision, uh, obviously the bishop wrote her a letter about that. That letter, I believe, was delivered via email. But uh, nonetheless, it was a letter about the outcome of the disciplinary council. It wasn't the bishop who, who published that letter. It was Kate. Uh, and she's free to do that. That's that's not an issue. But the bishop is not free to do that. The bishop is bound by rules of confidentiality, if you will. And the outcry would be and should be very great if he did break that confidentiality. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I decided to do was, based upon my experiences and without naming any names or specifics of the disciplinary council itself, I just decided to write my first-hand account of one disciplinary council that I participated in out of the many that I've participated in over the years. And, and you say first-hand because you were bishop? I was bishop at the time, yes. The, this this also... was an account of a disciplinary council that I participated in when I was bishop. Okay. Correct. But you've also had a hand in other councils as a high council member and even a member of a stake presidency? Or? Correct. Uh, not a member of a stake presidency. Okay. I was a stake executive secretary at okay. one time. And stake executive secretaries don't normally sit on high councils unless one of the high counselors, for one reason or another, can't participate. And then the stake president can ask a worthy Melchizedek priesthood holder to fill that slot that normally would have been occupied by that high counselor. And they chose you. And they chose me on okay. more than one occasion in that particular uh, stake that I was in at the time. Okay. Well, as a matter of explaining the operations and scope of the work that we're speaking of here, I want to read a few statistics to start out. That is that there are, as of last general conference, 3,050 stakes and 571 districts, which means that there's 3,621 stake and district organizations that hold disciplinary councils. Who goes in front of a stake or district council? Uh, As far as the disciplinary council Mm -hmm. is concerned, the the handbook's very clear on the fact that, um, that a disciplinary council can be held at either a ward or branch or stake or district level, stake and district being mm-hmm. at the same level and, and um, ward and branch being basically at the same level. The stake or district council is only held in two instances. Number one, if a Melchizedek priesthood holder is facing disciplinary sanctions and the likely outcome of that disciplinary council is excommunication. Okay. Okay. Do they have to be temple uh, endowed as well, or is no. that not related? No, okay. it's just Melchizedek priesthood holder. Okay. And obviously a Melchizedek priesthood holder may not be endowed. Right. Um, but, you know, as long as they're elder, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, then they would, and they're facing likely excommunication, then they'll appear before a, um, a stake. stake president's disciplinary So that's a more council. rare... It is a more rare occurrence, okay? Any other disciplinary action can occur at the ward level or the branch level. Okay. 
Now, I mentioned that there's two instances where it can happen at the stake level, and I mentioned what one of those were. The other instance where it can happen at the stake level is on what I refer to as the back end of the process. Anytime there's a disciplinary council that imposes formal discipline upon a member of the church, there is the disciplinary council that imposes the discipline, and there is a disciplinary council at the back end that lifts that dis- that discipline or removes okay. that discipline. And that back end disciplinary council has to happen at the same level at which the discipline was imposed. Okay. So if a brother, for instance, who holds the Melchizedek priesthood appears before a stake disciplinary council and he is excommunicated, then if he wants to be rebaptized, he has to appear before a stake disciplinary council again. Excellent. Okay. Okay. Same thing could apply to a ward disciplinary council. If somebody appears before a ward disciplinary council, then on the back end to have the discipline removed, they still have to appear before a ward disciplinary council as well. Okay. And just to make sure we clear up all instances, there are disciplinary hearings that can happen in missions as well under a mission president? Correct. Correct. And and they can appear and they basically function the same as the stake level. Okay. Uh, disciplinary council, yes. And those happen in areas of the church where there is a mission, mm-hmm. but there is not a formal organized stake in that area. Okay. Obviously, in the United States, in you know 99% of the continental United States, it's going to be underneath the stake auspices. Sure. But there still are branches that, world. Yeah. that are you know within um, a mission that, that that would occur. Okay. Now, you talk about this idea of having the, uh, a church discipline lifted by the same level. Uh, in the case of Kate Kelly, she's seeking an appeal. Does Correct. the appeal happen at the same level, or does that bump up a level? How does the appeal process It work? bumps up a level, and and I'm going off of memory here, but okay. the, the, it, the memory that I'm going off of is because uh, if a bishop holds a disciplinary council— he needs to explain to the person being disciplined that that person has the right of appeal. And the right of appeal just basically means that within 30 days of the disciplinary council, the person can appeal that decision of the disciplinary council to the next higher ecclesiastical level. So, for instance, in Kate Kelly's case, where the uh, discipline disciplinary council was at a ward level, the appeal would be made to the stake level. So it would be made to the stake president um, in that area. Now, it has to be to the stake president of the ward in which the discipline occurred. Got it. In other words, she's uh, in transit right now and is temporarily uh, living in, I believe, Provo. I'm not quite Mm -hmm. sure. But she could not go to her uh, to a stake president in Provo and appeal a decision that was made at her ward back in Virginia. Okay. The, the the appeal would have to go to the stake president in Virginia. Now that being said, the decision that would be made by the stake president um, is even appealable. Okay. Okay. So can, can she take this all the way to the first presidency? Well, she can. Is this like a Supreme and, Court kind of situation? Yeah, that that sort of that sort of uh, okay. thing, if you will. Although it's a very loose comparison. I mean, there's sure many differences between secular courts and disciplinary councils. 
Um, I know we used to call them church courts. We no longer do. They're called sure. disciplinary councils in order to distance that uh, context in in our minds because they are not the same by any stretch of the imagination. But after, if she appeals from the stakes decision, then that appeal would be made to the first presidency directly okay. from there. Okay. And that, again, would have to be made within 30 days of having uh, uh, having received the stake president's decision. Well, and to me, it seems at this point that the question becomes, it sounds to me like she's a pretty determined lady and that, that it's there's no reason to think that um, unless there is an overturn prior to the profit, that her goal is to get an audience with the first presidency. Is there any mechanism that would stop that from happening? My understanding of appeals is that all appeals are made in writing, not in person. Oh, okay. Um, now, I could be wrong on that, okay? Because quite honestly, in the dozens of disciplinary councils that I've been involved in, um, I haven't known of a single one of them that's been appealed. Oh, now, okay. notice I didn't say appealed successfully. Right. I mean appealed at all. They, they, they just weren't. Yeah. Uh, because the person who... Uh, was involved in that disciplinary council, um, didn't choose to exercise that side of things. So, Well, let's move to your specific account that you talk about in the article. Um, again, we, we can't disclose or should disclose, shouldn't disclose much regarding it, but what can you say? Why, why did you pick this one of all the ones to focus on? I picked this one, um, like I said, out of all the dozens that I've been involved in for two primary reasons. Number one, uh, it involved a sister in the church um, who appeared before the disciplinary council because of choices that she had made in her life. I mean, that's the only reason we ever appear before disciplinary councils because of choices we make in our lives. Right. And second, because it ended up in excommunication. And that seemed to me, those two things seemed to me to, to at least in my mind, make it most analogous to what I was hearing reported, not necessarily by Kate, but by others commenting on Kate and Kate's case and, and what they saw as the unfairness of everything that was going on. There's a lot of discourse happening that... that uh rampant with assumptions as Correct. to what happened. And and some of that assumption or that speculating is informed, but most of it is far from informed. That's why I wanted to get the ecclesiastical side of it out, if you will. Now, in writing that, I wasn't writing as in any official capacity or anything sure. else like that. I was just writing my firsthand experiences and having gone through it, as the guy sitting behind the desk. Well, with that being said, let's let's put it out there. Your your article can be found at alanwyatt.com. A L L E N W Y A T T dot com slash blog. Yes. A, <laughs> Perfect. A, a rather descriptive name there. <laughs> so at this point, you you've sat on this council where someone has been excommunicated. What would you say, or can you say, if if there is a way to do this? What are the reasons that people have come forward for these disciplinary councils? Have you been on one for apostasy? Because that is clearly what Kate was for. I have been on one for apostasy, but it was not this one. Do they okay. differ based on what they're there for, or do they all kind of do they operate the same way? 
They all operate the same way. Okay. Okay. In fact, many times, if you go back and you look at letters that bishops will write or stake presidents will write to a person summoning them to a disciplinary council. I say summoning, it makes it sound like a command. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's basically just the formal notification that yeah. the council is going to be held. If you look at those notifications, typically they will say something along the lines of um, a disciplinary council has been scheduled uh, to consider your actions which are found, uh, which are believed to be contrary to the, the law and order of the church, okay? And the reason that that occurs is, be, and that it's very generalized like that is, is that there's many ways that you can be contrary to the law and order of the church. Sure. Apostasy is just one of them, Okay. But it may be violation of moral code. It, it may be embezzlement of funds. It may be beating your wife or your children. I mean, there's any number of things that could land you before a disciplinary council. But again, that discussion about why the disciplinary council is being held and the specifics of it, nine times out of ten, has occurred long before that letter is sent. Okay, in discussions with the person. So you mean they've they've they would have had to have met prior to and said, "This is something we're concerned about. This is something we're seeing, and we want to talk to you about it." Correct. Like I said, nine times out of ten, like in the one that I wrote about mm-hmm. uh, in my blog, that particular sister, I had actually been meeting with her for like four months before we even got to the stage of holding the disciplinary council. Now, what was I doing during that four months? I was spending time with her trying to discover what was going on in her life, what her needs were, where she was in her relationship with the Savior, what her understanding of gospel laws and principles were, um, and trying to figure out what would be the best thing to help her progress towards the ultimate goal of getting back to our Heavenly Father. Now, in that whole four months of discussions with her, um, I had certainly talked to her about the possibility of a disciplinary council and, and the possibility that it that it may be necessary. And anybody who's been in the church, if they're sitting in front of a bishop or a stake president and they say, hey, there's a possibility of a disciplinary council, that can be a little bit scary, and it may, might seem to an outsider to be intimidating. It wasn't done for intimidation in talking to them. Like I said earlier, we all make choices, and it's our choices that bring us to a certain point in our relationship with God and our relationship with the church and our relationship with our fellow human beings. Right. And just because we may not like the consequences doesn't mean that we can avoid those consequences. In that four months, as part of that process and discussing with her disciplinary councils, I went through the whole process of what a disciplinary council was, why they were held. I pulled out the handbook. I read her from the handbook what the (laughs) possible outcomes can be. And I did that a couple of times during that process, including just before she got the letter, letting her know that the disciplinary council had been scheduled. The idea was is that she needed to know what was going on. She needed to understand why things were happening and what the hopeful outcomes of those things were. 
Now, notice I said hopeful outcomes because a lot of people think that you go or that a bishop or a stake president goes into a disciplinary council knowing what the outcome is going to be ahead of time. It's not that way. It just does not occur that way. You go in with four possible outcomes. Okay. okay? What are those? Four possible outcomes. Uh, number one, no action. Okay. Uh, meaning that the disciplinary council meets, considers all the, the relevant facts and things like that, and no action is taken relative to that, that member's membership. Okay. okay. Second thing, they could be on formal, dis, uh, formal probation, which means that some uh, restrictions may be placed upon them exercising their rights of membership. For instance, they may not be able to take the sacrament or they may not be able to hold a temple recommend for a while, but it's still a formal probation, meaning that it's been considered by a disciplinary council. Third potential outcome is, is disfellowshipment, which is fairly severe. Okay, it it means that most everything's curtailed as to what they can do and 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 exercise within the church, but they still have the opportunity to to wear garments, they still have the opportunity to claim membership in the church, they still have the um, uh, which means all their covenants are still in effect. Sure, they still have the uh, the opportunity to pay tithes and offerings if if they'd like to. And the fourth potential outcome is excommunication. And it's the most rare. It's almost like a bell curve. I mean, it's rare to have no action, and it's rare to have excommunication. The two in the middle are the ones that are most common as outcomes for disciplinary councils. Okay. If a person is excommunicated from the church, then they're no longer a member of the church. Uh, all rights of being a member are gone. Um, they may still have all of the beliefs and things like that that they had before, and they're free to believe, you know, but they're not free to be, and I put quote marks around the word be. <laughs> the quotes, yeah. Yeah. They're not free to be a Mormon or a member of the church. Publicly, we're talking about? Right, right. Um, well, that brings up an interesting question, and I, I, I kind of a— a way to look at this. I I, I went to uh, the Fair Mormon Wiki to find out what they had to say about it, and they said that disciplinary councils have three purposes, and these are given in order of priority according to the Church Handbook. Um, they say the priority is to first to save the soul of the transgressor, second to protect the innocent, which of course has a very different connotation depending on what the reason for the council is. And then third is to safeguard the church's purity, integrity, and good name. So Correct. I'm curious, in what ways have you seen these play out in the councils you've been a part of? Let's give this example. So let's start out with to save the soul of the transgressor. How does that become your first priority? Because it's not always looked at that way. It always, we talk about punishment, you know, that people look at it as punishment. Right, and it's so, not punishment. It's, and it's, so, so how is it to save the soul of the transgressor? You remember I talked earlier about the fact that before, in this particular case that I wrote about, and I wrote about it as typical of all of the cases that I've been involved in, but in this particular case that I wrote about, um, I talked with her for four months regularly, as in like every week or two during that four months before we got to the point of having the disciplinary council. And the whole purpose of that is to figure out 
how best to save her soul. Now, I would do that because part of my calling as bishop, part and parcel to that calling as bishop or that ordination as bishop, is to be what is referred to as a common judge in Israel. And so I was required by the Lord to sit in judgment, and, but not judgment in the punishment sense, judgment in the sense of how to best help that person. Okay. Which is a huge paradigm shift for a Which lot of people. Which is a huge people. paradigm shift. Yeah, a huge paradigm shift. Because judges exact punishment. Correct. That's the society we live in. Right. That's yeah. that's how we view it. Yeah. It's it, whether it's whether it's the judge sitting on the Supreme Court pounding the gavel, or whether it's the judge on America's Got Talent doing the big <laughs> red X. I mean, the judge yeah. is there to, you know, uh, to exact some sort of punishment. But that's not the way. That's not the purpose of a judge in Israel. It, in in many respects, when you use that analogy with America's Got Talent, it's whether or not you progress. Right? Correct, and and in a sense, in that same spirit, this judge position as a bishop, it's how to best help them progress. Correct, which is also a paradigm shift from this idea of I'm here to stop you or let you go. Right, right. That's not the focus here. Here, the focus is to save the soul of the transgressor. So, how then? Because this is a question that people will have. How then is excommunication saving their soul if you're stopping them from being a member? That's a really good question. Okay. I wish I had a good analogy to give, but but <laughs> okay. but let me tell you my take on it. And my feeling on it is when I joined the church, uh, and I'm a convert to the church. Okay, so when when I joined the church, I took upon myself covenants, and those covenants, being a two way promise between me and my heavenly Father, were that I would do certain things, and in return, he would do certain things. And if I didn't do certain things, I would stand in condemnation before God. You can see this if you look at the uh, oath and covenant of the priesthood. Sure. Okay? And, and, and through my spiritual journey, if you will, in the church, I take upon myself additional covenants as I go along. And each of those covenants have those promises and the potential penalties if I don't live up to what I've entered into, okay? Well, if I make choices in my life that show that I am not living up to my covenants entirely, and particularly if I make choices in my life that show that I'm not willing to live up to my covenants because I refuse to be repentant or anything else like that, it's not really going to be too good for me when I do stand before the final judge at the last day, meaning Heavenly Father, and these covenants are out in front of me, and he says, hey, you didn't live up to these. It's time now. You know, justice can't rob mercy, and mercy can't rob justice or whatever. It's now time to pay the piper. You've, you've made your choices. Well, a person who's excommunicated from the church, those covenants are removed. It's as if, it, it is as if they never made them. Is that official? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And therefore, when they stand before Heavenly Father at the last day, those covenants aren't brought out as a witness against them. Hmm. And mercy will have more of a place in helping them at the last day 
than if those covenants and them not living up to those covenants were still in place. It can be an extremely merciful thing to do. The hope is, is that no matter what the decision of a disciplinary council is, it will help the person get their life in order so that they can still accept those covenants and move on. Because the best of all possible scenarios is that we stand before our Heavenly Father at the last day. The covenants are laid out in front of us, and we are found to have been in compliance with all of those covenants. And he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and let us go. Hmm. So yeah, it's to save the soul of the sinner. Well, these other two, to protect the innocent and the, to safeguard the church's purity, integrity, and good name, these almost seem like either spiritual or, or social tourniquets in some respect. <laughs> social tourniquet, I love that, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but at this point, it seems in some cases that this ends up being the focus of the church's actions with Kate Kelly. Those other two, you yeah. mean? Okay. To protect the innocent, meaning perhaps the people that are being, let's use the word infected, by by her actions, okay. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but let's go with it. We can go with it. Yeah, um, to <laughs> and to safeguard the church's purity, integrity, and good name. That's clearly what was part of what was happening here, because what she was preaching was contrary to what has been revealed. So correct in that respect, these are clearly, at least according to official, official church literature, lower on the totem pole. Than saving her soul. Right. They're in the order of one, two, three that, that you listed mm-hmm. right there. Um, but why, I, why, why, then, why then dismiss the first priority? It seems like so many people in this discourse are unwilling to see what happened to Kate as, as saving the soul of the transgressor. And it's, in, in your opinion, you feel that the bishops and stake presidents have been demonized as these punishment people. Correct. I don't think that that first point has been dismissed by either, by, by any of your, her ecclesiastical leaders. I don't. And the reason that I say that is, and I'll come back to the public perception in just a moment, okay. but the reason that I say that is, is that those three points that you brought up, uh, the three considerations, in every disciplinary council that I've sat in, in the deliberations portion of the council, after we've you know, heard what the uh, the person has to say and ask questions and, you know, found out all the facts that are pertinent. And then we ask them to wait in the other room while we go through deliberations and seek what Heavenly Father would have us do. We're often looking at those three considerations and seeing how they apply to this particular case, Okay. The second one that you mentioned in there about uh, protecting the innocent, mm-hmm. in many cases, that doesn't even come into play at all because there were no innocent to have to protect. So, Meaning like maybe children that were being abused correct, or things like that. Okay? Uh, correct. That, that sort of thing. So innocent isn't necessarily the people that are exposed to the actions of these people, but maybe the ones that were injured. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, Which can still be subjective. It can be. Yeah. And and it varies on a case-by-case basis. And that's why it's important for whoever is is involved in the disciplinary council, meaning the ecclesiastical leaders, to go back and look at each of these in every single case as they're pleading for the Lord to help them and give them guidance that they consider these three issues in relation to the case at hand. 
Okay. Um, now, the public is never privy to those things and never will be privy to those things. They can't be. It's that confidentiality thing that, that I mentioned earlier. Sure. Um, and so I think that there's a whole lot of assumption jumping going on, people jumping to assumptions as to what must be happening. And, and, and so what you see, and this, this I think is symptomatic of our society, unfortunately, we have an us versus them mentality where we're the good guys and everybody else is bad. If you're against us, you're bad. Um, and there's been a lot of that going on with Kate Kelly. Okay. There's a lot of it that's gone on for a decade with John DeLynn. Okay. Well, there's um, a schism, to use a Catholic term. There's kind of a schism happening where there's right. a divide. It's like we choose up sides and we're going to play dodgeball, okay? <laughs> um, verbal dodgeball. Verbal dodgeball. <laughs> but, but that's not really what it is. There's a whole lot of people who think that there should be absolutely no consequences, ecclesiastical consequences I'm talking about, for any actions that a person takes. You mentioned my blog and, and mm -hmm. my firsthand account that I gave of this particular um, disciplinary council I was involved in. Some person came on that blog yesterday and made a comment, that, and it's the very last comment on there right now, where it said that uh, said that my account was um, a very vivid, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it right in front of me, a very vivid firsthand account of emotional uh, of brutal emotional abuse. Mm. That, that that's what you did as a bishop. Is that what you're saying? Well, it wasn't clear whether he <laughs> felt that she was emotionally abused or whether I as a bishop was emotionally abused, but I suspect it was the former rather than the later. Okay. The, the latter. The only thing I can say to such people is, you weren't there. You don't know what went on. Mm -hmm. And I am limited by words in expressing what went on. And words don't always convey feelings adequately, or they certainly don't express spirit. And I know what was there. Okay. I didn't mention Kate Kelly once in, in my blog post. Sure. What I wanted people to do was to see the other side. Excellent. And maybe they can apply it themselves. Maybe yeah, they, so, right? maybe they can, <laughs> you know, maybe, just maybe they can look at her bishop or the thousands of other bishops who have to go through this sort of thing just a little bit more charitably than they would have otherwise. Let me twist the angle just slightly sure. on this. Uh, there was an article by, or actually it was a talk by N. Eldon Tanner given in the October 1974 General Conference on these councils entitled, Our Responsibility to the Transgressor. And that title alone implies an interesting relationship between those in the council and the one that's being brought before the council. Now, considering these three purposes that we've talked about and we just mentioned, how does a bishop or a member of a stake presidency or high council walk that line of responsibility to the transgressor, to the innocent, and to the church? That seems like a very tall order, or at least because I haven't been through one, maybe I don't know how that it is, it is a tall order, but that's why they get paid the big bucks. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing there, obviously. Um, the first purpose of a disciplinary council, as you said, is to save the soul of the transgressor. Just because 
uh, well, obviously, if somebody receives one of the first three possibilities, you know, the no action or the uh, formal probation or the disfellowshipment, they're still a member of the church. And we're still going to go home teach them. And we're still going to reach out to them. We're going to invite them to all the, you know, the potluck dinners and, and everything else sure. that goes on. We're going to fellowship them. We're going to spend time with them. We're going to allow, you know, they're going to be in the classes and we're going to teach them. We're going to answer their questions as much as we can as they work their way through that repentance process. If somebody's excommunicated, it's a little bit harder. Most people who are excommunicated um, don't make it back to the church because the ties, like the ones I just mentioned, the home teachers, the visiting teachers, so on and so on, have been cut. Those per that person is no longer a member of the church. Therefore, they don't show up on the records of the church. Therefore, they don't show up on home teaching lists. They don't show up on visiting teaching lists. We forget about them in, in inviting them. It would also seem that the actions that would lead to excommunication are severe enough that they don't have an, as much interest in coming back. Is that fair or is that a false assumption? No, that's not necessarily a false assumption, okay. although it does vary on a case-by-case -case basis. Okay. Okay. I, I, like I said, the majority of them don't come back, but some of them do. And it is our responsibility, and when I say our responsibility, I mean largely the leaders— but even more than that, the members, to not forget these people, to still reach out to them, to love them, to, uh, to charitably empathize with them without compromising the principles upon which the church stands, and to do everything that we can to still invite them to come unto Christ. Okay, and that takes a lot of work. That that's takes the, that, that's the responsibility, though. It, that is the responsibility. Okay, that is the one lost sheep, and we supposedly leave the ninety and nine to go help the one lost sheep. Now it's hard to go help the one lost sheep if the sheep's nipping at you and trying to bite you and <laughs> and and everything else like that, and is doing everything it can to run away from you. Sure, but that doesn't mean you don't try. Excellent. Uh, within our human capabilities, as frail as they may be. And as limited as our time is and things right. like that. Right. Well, this might be a hard question, and I'll leave it for the last one. But have you ever felt that after you've gone through these councils that you made the wrong decision? That's a very interesting question. I've never felt that I made the wrong decision. Although there were times, and when I say times, I mean like two, <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay. Um, so it barely qualifies as times. <laughs> there were times that I questioned why a certain decision was made. You mean the question the inspiration that you got? Correct. Okay. In all cases, it wasn't my decision. It was the direction of the Spirit. And I enter into that decision based upon my conviction that I am being prompted by the Lord to take, uh, to make that decision or to voice that decision, if you will. So there have been a couple that I looked at it afterwards and go, I wonder why that one. It didn't make me say, oh, I made the wrong decision. I should have done something different because I still have to trust in the Lord and that the Lord has his hand in the whole process, okay? 
But because the person involved, who is the, the subject of the disciplinary counsel, still has their agency. I mean, they their agency's not removed because they've been through a disciplinary process. You, you question sometimes whether they will understand why a certain decision was made. Mm. So, for instance, let's say that the decision of the disciplinary council is no action. What does that mean? Well, the person who is the subject of the disciplinary council has a couple of ways that they can respond to that decision. One way might be to say, the Lord's being very merciful to me and he's given me a second chance. I need to still straighten up my act and do what I need to do. Or the person can come back and say, oh, I've been found innocent. I got away with it. I got away with it. I got off scot-free. I, I, guess can I can go, do it more. I can do it more. Exactly. Now, which response is appropriate? I figure the Lord will let that be known in his own due time. Okay. Fair. You know? I like that. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I, I really appreciate all the, the comments and perspective that you've brought to it. I hope that it has clarified some things, if not just operationally, but the the spirit and approach that the ecclesiastical side brings to these councils. Again, the article is found at alanwyatt.com forward slash blog. Thank you again, Alan, for coming on and talking about this. It's quite a right. Not a problem. Our next guest is Barbie Berg, who wrote an article on her personal blog entitled The Truth About an LDS Disciplinary Council. This article is based on her personal experience with going through a disciplinary council as a younger female, as well as her testimony of the spirit that accompanies these councils and their purpose. Welcome, Barbie. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. At this point, I want to say that I know that it's not an easy thing to come on and talk about this subject. Uh, It wasn't an easy thing to write about it, let alone come into a public forum and discuss it. So I guess what motivated you to come forward and to talk about this issue and and to write your article? Um, I really have found, I'm not a very, I don't want to say that I'm a private person about it, but I don't hide the fact that I've been through disciplinary council and that I've been inactive. It's very much a part of who I am. And I've used it in talks and lessons and things like that. But I really rarely talk about the possibility of me being excommunicated because it was a very dark time in my life. And um, I really haven't followed a lot of the ordained women stuff. I, For me, it was just, oh, that's not how I feel. And I kind of moved on. I, I wasn't someone that went on the blogs and really was bashing one way or another. But there was a, a news interview where she received her letter about the disciplinary council. Kate Kelly. Yes, yes, Kate Kelly. And um, she received her letter informing her of her disciplinary council. And she went to the media about it. And... I normally don't watch even the interviews and something about it compelled me to watch it. And she said these three bullet point words where she said, and you'll have to help me quote from my blog. Ambush. Ambush. She said that she felt that she was ambushed. Abusive. um, Abusive. She said it was a very abusive thing and that it was a violent step, that she would violently have to be removed from the church and from her congregation. Kicking and screaming. Kicking and screaming, yes. And there was something about it that literally made me sick to my stomach. 
because having been through a disciplinary council, I know that that is not the intention and that is not what actually happens in a disciplinary council. And I thought about it and I prayed about it and I talked to a few friends and I was like, I just can't stop feeling that I'm supposed to write about this. And a lot of people actually told me, that's pretty private. You're going to want to keep that private. And I just, you know, I really thought about it and I got my answer the next morning. I was like, nope, I'm supposed to write about it. And so I just put it all out there. So it's it's not common to disclose why church disciplinary councils are held. But if you would be willing to give us some kind of background on yourself so that we have an idea of your connection with this issue. Absolutely. Um, I'll basically put it as that I continually broke very sacred commandments, that I knowingly knew what I was doing, and it was something that I repeatedly did. And it was basically at that point a habit that I wasn't stopping. When you decide to come back to the church fully, you do have to deal with the things of the past. You can't just say, okay, I'm ready to come back. And let's just wash away everything and we'll just move forward as if everything's great. You really do have to deal with that repentance process and moving forward. So, yeah, I continually was breaking very sacred commandments. And this this was not—you weren't ambushed. No, not at all. You had multiple meetings prior to your council. Absolutely. How many would you say you had? Oh, goodness. I had been back to the church—kind of a little backstory when I decided to come back to the church. Um, I was 25 or 26, and— um, I'd had actually an experience with someone who was very anti the church. And I remember calling my sister after and I was like, why are people like this? I don't understand. Like this was someone who was trying to bait me into a, a discussion and really an argument. And I was like, I'm not even active. Why are you doing this? And I called my sister and I was like, why, why can't people just leave it alone? And she's like, if you're going to stick up for the church so much, just come back. And it kind of s- struck me. And so that week I went to my mom and I went to my sister. I said, I think I'm ready to start coming back to church. And that week they formed the Young Single Adult Ward in Parker, Colorado, where I'm from. And to me, that was just, the timing was just perfect. And Heavenly Father knows what he's doing. And um, so when I decided to start going back, it wasn't 100% thing. I mean, I wasn't, I'm 100% and I'm ready to go back to church and I'm perfect. Yeah, let's do all this. Give me a calling. It was really hard for me for probably two years. And so... When I met my bishop, the singles ward bishop, we instantly connected and he was like a father figure to me. And we probably met at least once a month, if not sometimes more than that. So we'd had dozens and dozens of meetings about it. And he did inform me though from like from an earlier time, he's like, when you're completely ready, let me know. Cause we want to give you a calling. We want you to be a part of the church. We want you to be a part of the ward, but we need to go through this process. So I, ambush was the last thing, Okay. the last word I would use to describe it. And this is just from me and my personal experience. When I was doing things that I, that were wrong, I was very good at ignoring the fact that they were wrong. I was great at it. I was awesome at it. Just, oh no, everything I'm doing is great and I'm feeling awesome and this is all wonderful. And so I think there becomes to a certain point, a level of denial that you almost become so comfortable with that it feels like everyone's attacking you where you know what's going on. And if you really just stopped and humbled yourself and looked around, it wouldn't be a surprise. In some ways, it seems like church disciplinary councils are designed to uh, at least bring attention to priorities. What's a good priority in your life? Mm -hmm. Is that what happened with you? Because you weren't excommunicated, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. But you did have some formal discipline. Yes. Was that a wake-up call? Oh, absolutely. And and I was informed very 
plainly that if my actions continued, I would be excommunicated. I mean, it was made very clear to me. The The church does things in a very loving and kind way, but there's not a lot of gray area. Like with that situation that I was in, it was, we love you. We want you to come back. Here's what we're going to go through. If you keep letting it happen, here's the next step. So, so it's transparent. Oh, yes. Okay. Very much so. I never had a moment of feeling, oh, what does that really mean? Or could this really happen? I never. And if I did have questions, though, the bishopric and every all of his counselors, everyone was willing to help me. And if they didn't know an answer, they were happy to go and get it for me. So, so a lot of people look at these church councils, because well, they used to be called, partially called courts. Correct. That, that they were there to exact punishment. But you didn't feel that way. Not at all. Okay. And, you know, really, at the end of my disciplinary council, I saw in each of those men that if they could have let me just walk out that room and take the sacrament the next day and have everything be fine, they would have let me. But they know that that's not what Heavenly Father wanted, that that's not the process. But they would have. All of those men would have taken the burden on themselves if they could have. You keep saying men, which is one of the critiques that come up from time to time, the gender roles in these church councils. Were you made aware that you could have a member of the Relief Society presidency there as, you know, with you in the church disciplinary council? And, and if so, is that, would that be something that you would have actually wanted in your case? You know, I, I feel very inadequate, like explaining that I honestly don't remember. Okay. I trust my bishop fully. I I'm sure that honestly, at the time, he probably made it very clear to me that if you would like to, at the time, I wasn't very close with my Relief Society, anyone in my Relief Society, let alone the president, um, but I was very close to the bishopric. So I feel bad. I don't honestly don't remember, but I know that if I had come to him and said, I'm going to need a woman in the room, he would not have said, oh, no, absolutely not. I know he would have said, let's find a Relief Society president or things like that. So, With that whole idea of gender roles aside for a minute. Uh, the the purpose of any council or dis- church discipline is to is to help the individual obtain the peace and hope provided by Christ's atonement. Now, in your experience, it wasn't for apostasy. No. Which is what Kate Kelly was facing. But the idea being that this was based on your choices. Do you feel does that make your council different? because it was for a different issue and that you might not be able to relate to the same experience because it's a different issue? You know, I think when you really break it down, choices are choices, whether they're what I did or for apostasy or for whatever reason it is. I think we make choices and we're very conscious of our choices. And so really, I mean, I know that they're on, it's kind of apples to oranges, but they're still all fruit if that makes sense. <laughs> like, we'll go with that. It's not the best. Well, let's let's conclude in getting back to your article with the following quote. Okay. You wrote, quote, my disciplinary counsel was something that was necessary for me to go through. Thinking back on it actually strengthens my testimony, and I'm thankful for it. I'm not a perfect person. Far from it. I still make mistakes, and I am so thankful for the atonement, end quote. You also say how scared you were going through the process. Perhaps you could maybe reconcile how it is that you were able to go through this and come out on the other end thinking that this was something that was necessary for you to go through. 
how it actually strengthened your testimony? Um, it's really kind of similar to, I think back to, because I've had the only negative feedback I've had on my blog piece was people that are outside of the church. And that was the line they all said, oh, you felt it was necessary and they had to take things away from you to punish you. And I really think of it as like kind of a little kid who's making mistakes and I'm going to keep doing this whatever thing. I'm going to keep hitting my brother over and over and over again. And you have to tell them, I'm going to take this away from you unless you stop. Well, if you don't ever take it away from him, is he really ever going to stop? And is it going to mean anything? No. He's going to keep, He's just beating, gonna keep beating the crap out of his brother. So, so to me, it was in essence the same thing. I'm very much a person of, I get so comfortable with things that sometimes you do have to have them gone to really realize what they were. And so I've, I've had some people say, well, who is it up to them to say you can't take the sacrament? But not being able to take the sacrament and being aware of it every week. No one was pointing me out. No one was shaming me. There was nothing like that. It was just a very private thing of me being aware I am not able to take the sacrament right now. Helped me every week to reflect on the things that I've done. How do I want to move forward? And I think that's the main key is that how do I want to move forward? Do I want to move forward? Do I still want to be a member of this church? The the stepping stones are laid out very clearly for me. And so, but for me, I had to have those things taken away to say, wow, I really do want them. There was an experience that you had that you relay in your article that is, it puts a nice little capstone on your experience and it speaks to the spiritual core of what a church disciplinary council is about. So after you were waiting in the hallway for their decision, you come back into their office. Then what happens next? It was, and I get a little teary when I think about it, um, it is probably. That evening altogether was just the most sacred experience of my life. And walking back in that room, I cannot even describe the spirit that was there. And I say the phrase over and over again in my blog. Someone else pointed out to me that I talk about the men over and over again. But these men were there. And I just remember seeing how puffy all of their eyes were from crying. And you could see their tear-stained faces. And you could see their lapels of their jackets just covered in these little teardrops. And I was meant, I was made to feel so much love that they, they all just showed me. I mean, they consistently told me how wonderful I was and how much of a presence I was in the ward and that Heavenly Father and our Savior want me here. And that is why the decision was made. And they reaffirmed as well that the answer to their prayers was that I should not be excommunicated. But I knew that very clearly right before I walked in the room that these men did not make that choice. And so it was just, it was really just an incredible experience. It was a hard time in my life, but I am so thankful for it. So thankful. And then they offered you a blessing. Yes, they did. And it was wonderful because I, I didn't grow up in a, a house where I had access to a lot of priesthood blessings, except with my home teachers. And so the fact that I, and so asking for a blessing tends to be very private and a hard thing for me. And, um, knowing that I had all of these men in this room that were worthy to give me a priesthood blessing who loved me and cared for me and wanted the best for me. I'll never forget it. It was wonderful just to be able to ask for a priesthood blessing. Now, where can people go to find your blog online? If they are bored enough to look, it is barbieannlove at blogspot.com. Well, let's say it, barbieannlove.blogspot.com. Oh, 
www.blogspot.com. I obviously go on it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll put a link to it on uh, on the post for this episode. And I want to thank you for coming in and talking about this. I know it's not an easy thing to talk about church disciplinary councils, especially when you're talking about your own. But uh, I want to thank you for coming in and talking about it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galetti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.